And Ken and Ruth Taylor are missionaries in Cambodia. Ken's expertise is actually in the field of mental health, which is why we said, hey, you know what? Please share some of the things that God has just shown you along the years uh, and in, in his expertise of what he has to bring for our church that we can learn from uh, and live in and experience together. So please welcome Ken Taylor. Hi. And Ruth, too. Thank you. It's always great to be with you. Well, I'm going to get right into it. I got a lot to say. And uh, so let's start with prayer. Lord Jesus, you are such a wonderful God. You're so brilliant. How you designed the body. just as you want it. All the parts. Lord, we we want to be with you. We want to we want to be a body that is is like what you have designed. But it seems it seems like you you there's a de design flaw here, and that is that the people who are to live this body are so broken. But we know you've got an answer for that too. You've got an answer for us. So help us. Help me in this message today that I'd be able to convey firstly a message of, of how great and wonderful you are all-surpassing. So be with us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So last week, we started to look into 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 26, which is essentially an allegory for God's order for the community of God's people. Now, for those of you who are not here, or maybe those who were, and I just want to kind of review it a little bit, I pointed out that there are three, uh, I should say, entities that are in this passage. There's God. And he's kind of in the background in this passage as we read it, and we'll quickly read it. You'll see that he's, he's just kind of referred to a little bit by Paul. And so it'd be easy just to not, not really notice him so much but he is the centerpiece. He's everything. And that's where I, we wound up. Yes, uh, I, God, God, as I was in the final preparation in the 11th hour, God just illuminated to me how important, how essential the God part is. It's, it's not God part. It's everything. God is everything. He's all over this. And he caused, first in, in me, as I'm doing final preparations, to just sit back and just think about how wonderful it has been in my life that God picked me. Just like he says in there, God sets the people into the body just as he pleases. It's a design. And I reminisce back about even in my childhood, it was starting to happen. 
He was placing me in the body. And he's done that for every one of you. And I hope, I hope that you had a chance to think about that. I hope you had a chance to think about the, the wondrous and, and, and mysterious ways that God took you to where you are now. Sometimes such meandering, nonsensical, can't make any rhyme or reason out of the journey, but here you are, right where God wants you to be. Now, I want to say one more thing that I think I didn't maybe emphasize as much as I wanted to. And I'll pick it up right here. This wonderful passage, Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. I told you, I told you about my story about and one of the it was the darkest moment of my life up to that point, how God met me there in such a precious way, and it's one in which I will never forget. And I want to say something about I, I hope to I hope to uh, convey here that there's something even more than, than, than that God sympathizes. To sympathize is to have pity for. It's somebody, a superior, having sympathy for a, a, a pathetic situation, a sad situation. And, and God is in every way superior, and it's the right word in some ways. But I, what, I, I, what I want to say here is that when Christ came down to earth, the advent, when he came down to earth and he suffered many things throughout his, his life and ultimately suffering on the cross. The primary reason, of course, was atonement. But there's something more because what we know, what we realize here is that there's another dimension in which God can relate to us. He can relate to our sufferings because He, he experienced them. He experienced them, every one. And sympathy doesn't quite do it. And the word that we, psych, you know, psychiatrists or psychologists use is empathy. Empathy. I think that's even a better word because it's not, just, it's not just kind of feeling for somebody, it's feeling in. And Jesus can feel in. You think he, you think he understands your shame? For some of you who have been abused, sexually abused, raped, you think he can relate to that? I was talking to a friend of mine in England just this last week and we were talking about that and we were talking about about how God relates to us and he and he said you know you know it's a fact and it's I didn't check it but he said it's a fact that it's in the scriptures that Jesus actually 
uh, was put on the cross naked. We, we, we put clothes on him for modesty's sake, but he was naked. You know that naked, to be stripped naked publicly is, is extreme sexual abuse? He knows. Now I'm going to say something here that might be theologically wrong. I hope it's not, but I'll say this. It seems to me that not only have we... It just seems to me that God Himself is now more able to feel the feelings of our infirmities because of what he did. Now, I don't know how that works because God always was perfect. But I, I, think, I still think it's true. And, I, and I, my defense on that is the, the series that we, we were on, Jesus is better. He's better. He's better in his ability to connect with us. Empathy is sympathy plus identification with. What strikes me so deeply is the extreme links that God went to when he sent Jesus down to earth to dwell among, amongst us and ultimately to die on the cross. It's not just the atonement, I think, but it, was the, it brought about the increasing intimacy between God and man and is part of the whole redemptive package. All right, so that's... Now we have... We focused on the God part, which is in some ways the whole of it. But now, in the rest of this message, I want to emphasize the body part and then the parts of the body. And but let's take it. Let's just read it again, so that so that we have uh, we have a fresh orientation of that. And um, let's see. I don't know what happened here. I thought I had it marked, but just a minute, please. 1 Corinthians 12, starting with verse 26. Is that up on the screen? Can you put that up there? Is that possible? So, there should be no... Oh, that's 25, excuse me. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. Oh, wait a minute. Let me see. I'm sorry. I apologize. Do you have that up there? Oh, boy. That's, I'm going to turn around and look at it. <laughs> For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. Okay, we'll go on. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not be make it any less a part of the body, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, 
where would be the sense of smell. Okay, maybe we'll stop there. And I, I want, we want to get into this thing called the body. I've got three things to say about it. And the first one is very clear in verses 12 and 13 that the body is one. It's one. Yet, it has many parts. Lots of members. The body requires members have shared values. So what, what, what brings this body together is similarity. Shared values, shared goals, shared vision, shared hope, community. The more modern term for church or body implies a relationship based on some similarity, not of blood or family, but of something else participated in. The members have affinity, something in common. This community is what we find so calming, so drawn to. We're no longer alone when we're around with those like us. It's a sweet thing, this similarity. Babies, starting at about six or seven months, just start to sense that they are separate from their mother and to a lesser extent, father. Sorry, dads. <laughs> Prior to that, for all they know, they are part of her. When that awareness first dawns on them, it must be very confusing. It won't be long and they will be reveling in the fact that they are of their own personhood. But before that, they experience a period of time of terror. Other people coming into their space are strangers. They, that's what they call it, stranger anxiety. But safe in the arms of his or her mother, there is peace. We find peace in that security of, of similarity. There's probably no better example of this feeling of well-being due to the personality, or, or due, due to the commonality, excuse me, among friends than in the gathering of Peter, James, and John taken up to a mountain by Jesus, their leader. And there, Jesus' countenance is transformed into gleaming light. There they are, heaven meets earth. Three common fishermen, fast friends, now joined by Elijah and Moses, venerated saints from a bygone era, all centered around the Son of God, arrayed in a glory never seen before. We kind of mock him a little bit. But do we really wonder why Peter wanted to capture this rapturous moment? It must have seemed to them the apex of life together. This is community. 
they thought. One in everything. But they had much to learn from this one who would become the head of the church. He's going to gather many more. And now we see it. Jew, okay, that's okay, so far, so we're going to stop right there. No, Greek, no, Greeks. Slaves, free men, and other, other passages similar, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free. Great variety. And this comes to the second point I want to make about the body and that the body consists of these many members who are different from one another. Others. Different other than. God is building a body. It's a diverse community. Oh my goodness. Now comes some tension. Difference can, of course, be both enriching and threatening. Unfortunately, history has shown us that threat is far more common than the vision for enrichment. But it's clear from this and virtually every other passage in the New Testament that we should welcome community with saints with all their differences. Jesus is recorded in Matthew 5, 44 through 48, stretches the universe even further of whom we are to love, even beyond the borders of community of the saints and into the enemy territory when he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? I love, I love stories, a lot of, especially stories from antiquity. And here's one, a Jewish story. The Rebbe was asked, in the Talmud, it says that the stork is called a Hasidah. In Hebrew, that is the devout or loving one because he gives so much love to his mate and his young. Why then, asked the disciple, is he classified in the scriptures with the unclean birds? The rabbi answered, because he loves, he gives love only to his own. The third point I want to make about the body is that the body is a unit, diverse, that is very important to God. And that's an understatement. Essential in God's eyes to issue his gift of healing. It's not merely a crowd of people. It's an organism. It's an entity that God loves and protects just as much as he loves and protects the parts. Here's a definition 
of an entity, a thing with a distinct and independent existence, or the definition of an organism, a whole with interdependent parts likened to a living being. It's like a living being. And Christ loved the church. Now I have a question. I'll set up the question this way. In the previous chapter, to 1 Corinthians 11, uh, he's talking about the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, and he, we find in there a phrase called discern the body. You know that? Discern the body. Now, he warns that it's a serious sin when we don't discern the body. Now, I, I, I believe that it's right, it's correct, that the, 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 the most important meaning of discerning the body is discerning the body of, of the actual sacrifice, sacrificial body of Christ, the atonement, to, to appreciate that. We don't come to the Lord's table worthily if we don't if we don't really understand the atonement we don't understand we're, we're we're sharing in this meal because he gave his life for us we, we understand that but there's there there's, has to be another meaning to discern the the body because he's talking about it in the context of human relationships you know, so he says He says uh, that it's a serious sin that can be committed when we partake of the Lord's Supper inappropriately. In the 1 Corinthians 11 passage, Paul addresses a particular problem. The problem is that there's a division and there's a lack of respect that some members have for the others. Basically, it's the haves indulging in all the things that affluence can afford, displayed at a potluck, the use of, to use our own modern term, which would generally be the meal prior to taking communion. Meanwhile, at this pre-communion meal, the poor often would have little or no food. They were poor after all. Now it may be that the wealthy among them never even realized how crass and insensitive and unchristian their behavior was. They were just living their normal life. Now, I've never been rich, so when I read about fat cats like this treating the poor so shabbily I get real judgmental about that. I can't understand that. <laughs> now, I said I, I've never been rich. That is until we moved to Cambodia. Almost nine years. Now, I'm rich. And I don't even realize it most of the time. I 
I've sometimes acted like that. Example. And I'll give you an example. I'll be open here. This is just one of many. I went to the workshop where I train Cambodian men in, work, in woodworking. I've come to really love these guys. Well, but just say there's an awful lot of things that go wrong in the shop. <laughs> and uh, there's a, there's a, there gets to be an accumulation of frustration about these things that go wrong. And one of them happened this day. I came in and I was going to saw a board uh, and uh, the table saw, which is the centerpiece of the shop. You can't do much without a big table saw. And, with, and it was broken. So I went over to the shop foreman, Buta, who I dearly love. And uh, I says, what's wrong with the saw? And he, he explained it to me. I said, well, how much is it going to take to fix it? He said, uh, maybe $3. $3. Now I'm angry. Two full days in a shop full of woodworkers with nothing to do because the table saw wasn't working. I gruffly reached into my pocket. I pulled out a $10 bill and sent him off to get the part. Meanwhile, I'm thinking all kinds of bad things. Not about him, but about Cambodians. How they just don't think ahead. They don't plan for things. They, they have no sense of business. And, and that's the reason that they just can't get out of poverty. All kind more. It just, it just kind of... It just kind of makes sense to me. And it wasn't until some time later that I stopped to think about what that encounter with the rich Westerner must have been like from Bhutas end. And sometimes you can see a sort of, a, a sort of a puzzled, quizzical look on his face at times like that. Perhaps he was thinking, I wonder what it would be like to have so much pocket money that I could just take care of whatever problem comes up without having to wonder if now I have enough money in my pocket to buy the baby milk on my way home. And he probably wondered, why does he get so irritated with us so much? The truth is I've so often repeated these little scenes and had come to a coming back time and again to apologize. And then I wonder if after so many of these encounters, he's wondering if he really feels so bad, why does he keep doing it? <laughs> Sorry. That makes me sad. Back to the text. Paul chastises them for profaning the Lord's Supper. He said, How you are treating the less fortunate among you shows what you are supposedly celebrating isn't really the Lord's Supper. What a jab that is. 
you are sinning by not discerning the body. The point I'm trying to make here is that we not only need to look to the needs of ourselves and the needs of others, we also need to look at the, the whole, the body as a whole. To do violence to another person is to do violence to the whole. Now, let me illustrate what I mean by this. I do a lot of marital counseling. And when a couple first comes in and they're sitting on the couch, I've come to, when I look at them, and sometimes I'll actually say this, often I will, I look at the man and I see him, and I look at the woman and I see her, but I see a third entity there. I see one, this thing in the middle that's invisible. And that, it's an entity. And that thing I call the relationship. That's the body. That's like the body in the church. It's, a, it's the relationship. That's the us. There's you, there's me, and there's us. It's the us. Most assuredly, the man and the woman that I'm working with are important and their pain is important. But are, do they, are they aware that the us is crying out too? Do you care about the relationship? That's what I want. I want to, I want to ask that question. I think today we may be at an all-time low, at least, at least in our lifetime, of value for or discernment of the body, whether it's got to do with our marriages or families or whether it's got to do with the church. People are leaving church in droves, they say. I wonder why. But it has value to God, great value to God. Some of the couples I work with no longer even have a memory of the sweetness and the exquisiteness of intimacy that that relationship provides. And in their pain and disappointment with how their relationships have gone sour, they default to caring only about their own individual needs. In their falling out of love for their mate, they are really falling out of love with community, with relationships. And if I can't help to revise their vision for us, I don't think it's going to work. They won't value it enough. The same goes for the body of Christ. In a church, if the parts can't see how their efforts to value what relationships can provide, they will lose their vision as well. Let's bring it down to community, what community body life, we used to call it, can do for those with, with and without mental illness much more than just fitting in, but rather belonging. Belonging to experience that is to be halfway there. Even if one is suffering from depression, 
anxiety, bipolar, OCD, or any other debilitating mental illness. Even if of that, you know you're not alone and that healing can take place here. But it must be mutual. And there's that word again that I used last week, mutual. We are all responsible to discern the body. And that includes the sufferer himself or herself. The church is not to be a place where there's givers and there's takers. That's a, a perversion of this helping process. Everybody has responsibility. Those of you in pain, except for the very acute and temporary situations in which you can do nothing, must help too in order for it to work. Sometimes it just means showing up and telling the truth about your despair over your OCD or your mood swings. Help people to help you is a byword. Help people to help you. They can't help you if they don't know you. Let them know you need them. Seriously depressed people as well as with other mental disorders, have a very uh, deadly coping mechanism, and that is isolation. Isolation. Isolating is not solitude. It is a self-imposed deprivation, deprivation of life and hope that would otherwise be available to you through people who care about you to be instruments of healing. In my research for this talk, I came across a term I had not heard before. It's called smiling depression. It's a particular foolish way to cope. It's when somebody asks you how you're doing and you say never better. But it's not the truth. That's what some of you, if, if that's what some of you do, you've gotten, and you've gotten even to the point of suicidal thoughts, then you're playing a deadly game. How many times do we hear of someone who committed suicide and no one, not family, not friends, not co workers, had a clue? That's tragic. If that's your pattern, turn away from it, please. Turn away from it. But there's another thing that advice that I would give to those who are in, in the suffering side of things, whether it's depression or anxiety, and that is stay involved in, in the small ways that you can. Do not make, let yourself be more dependent than you, than you otherwise would be. Here's another one of those stories. A man walking through the forest saw a fox that had lost his legs, and he wondered how it lived. And then he saw a most unusual sight. A tiger came up with game in his mouth. The tiger ate its fill. 
and left the rest of the meat for the fox. The next day, uh, God fed the fox by the same means, the tiger. The man began to wonder at God's greatness and wondered what God was saying in this. And so he said, I too shall rest in a corner with full trust in the Lord and he will provide me with all that I need. He did this for many days, but nothing happened. And he was almost at death's door when he heard a voice say, O you who are in the path of error, open your eyes to the truth. Stop imitating the disabled fox and follow the example of the tiger. Sometimes it's hard to think like that when we're in such despair. But there's always something we can do to give as well as receive. I'm going to quickly tell a story of a patient I had years ago when I was working in a mental hospital. It was a Christian program. It was a great program. And uh, uh, we, uh, the man was uh, in mid-20s, I think, uh, married, uh, no children, and uh, had been depressed. But his history had been depressed very, very severely for a long time. Had tried many different kind of medications. And all the medications that seemed to work for most people didn't work for him. And so he was in our program, I think, for the second time. And, and he didn't do very well in the program. He, he didn't, I don't think he improved at all. And he didn't participate much. Uh, and, and, and prior to that, just this information, he, he worked for his father and, and it made it convenient for him to miss work a lot. So he, he probably skipped a two days a week on average, and uh, laid in bed. And meanwhile, his wife is working. She's concerned about him. She wants to try to reach him in the daytime, but then he even sabotages that more by turning off the phone and in isolation. And that's the way he lived. And he lived that way in the hospital program. And I saw him for a while afterwards. And uh, maybe uh, a few months, and then he dropped out. And I didn't see him anymore. And then a year and a half later, he came back. I said, well, what can I do for you? And he said, well, I want to tell you something. I got it. I got what you and Dr. Bell and the team was, was saying to me, and I never listened to you. You said... It doesn't matter how bad you feel, you still need to do the basics of living. You've got to make yourself do it. And he said, I didn't believe it. I, I thought I must first be, be well. And he said, so I, I've been going to work every day. I'm staying in communication with my wife. I'm doing these, these little things and of course, I want to know, well, then, where's your depression? Is it gone? No, it's not. I think it's some better, but not that much. It's, I still feel pretty bad most days, but, but at least I, I feel better that I'm doing something and I'm contributing something. And he left. 
Well, then he came again, checked in again a year later. And he's feeling even better about himself. Even better. His depression has improved some more now. Still there. He's not sure it's ever going to go completely away. But he said, I changed jobs. I went to a job where they're going to really hold me accountable. And it's a challenging job. And, it's, and, it's, and I'm looking at it more as it's, it's exciting. And he said, my wife and I, I think we're ready for a family. That's, isn't that a great story? And it's a true one. We all have a part to discern the body, to think about the welfare of, other, of the other. All right. Now we're going to go to the third part. And uh, we're going to look at the parts. So could you put up on the screen... Uh, we read, but we already read about the foot. And what is the foot's problem? Uh, can we get that up pretty quick? Uh, the uh, the foot. That's uh, I call them Barry Foot. Is anybody? I want to know. Does anybody know have any association with Barry Foot? Anybody? Oh my goodness. I thought somebody would. This is too young a crowd. <laughs> Barry Foote was the catcher for the Chicago Cubs back in the 80s. And he was, uh, he kind of had a, he was 15 minutes of fame. And so I, I thought Foote, I mean, I'll just go with Barry. Kristen, I don't know. I just like the name, yes. But, but let's take a look at them. Let's do a case study of them. So observable symptoms. What do we know about Barry or Kristen? Complains because he or she is not some other part. The hand would be good. Uh, Second thing is she states that for that reason, he or she doesn't belong to the body. All right, that's the presenting problem. Now, are there other things that we think we know about, about him or her? I think so. Well, immediately we're doing that. So let's go to the next slide. Inferences or speculations. Well, he probably has low self-esteem. I'm going, I'm, uh, notice I'm changing the pronouns back and forth. She doesn't like who she is. He fantasized that if only he were in a, in a more prominent and important role, his problems would vanish. He's envious. So you see, we're, we're, we're forming a view of this person. And we've got to be careful with that because we might be wrong about some of it. Probably right about a lot of it, but we don't know. And I'm just saying, you who want to come alongside people, don't jump to too many conclusions and sometimes keep your speculations to yourself to when it will be useful. All right, let's go to the next one. So I have some questions to ask of ourselves, of those who are 
are, are, are volunteering to help. And the first question is this one. Is he or she equal to the symptoms observed? In other words, if this is a depressed person, is that all he is? Is that his identity? I hope you answer no to that. Because if you don't, I don't think you're going to be very helpful. And you probably won't even be motivated to do it. Another one to ask is, or this is more of a advice more than asking, you need to know the person. You need to know their story. If you want to get the full picture of who this person is, you got to sit with them. You got to know their story. You got to know their background information as to the degree that they're willing to share with you. Current stresses. A big thing you're going to want to know is their strengths. Because you don't see very many of the strengths often with the person who is suffering. But they're there, most assuredly there. And it's our job to find them. And you need to know about their defenses because everybody who is suffering has defenses. Their shame, there's fear that other people will judge them. We all have that. We need to know what their defenses are. Uh, respect them. And find a way around them. By our own uh, kindness. And, and, and even probably as important as that is our own self-disclosure about how we can identify with them. Pitfalls of the helper. Yes. Beware of your own biases about remedy for the person with possible mental illness. So here's three things I, I say to particularly could be problem. Search and destroy approach to possible sin in, in his or her life. In other words, I'm, a, I'm going after that sin in the other. I'm really good. I got great vision to see the speck. And I see it. And I'm going to tell you about it. Because you need to know that. Because that's your problem. I'm stating it a lot more crassly than, than is real life. But to, to the degree that we have that attitude, it does get across. Second one would be how do I see the solution? Do I have a narrow lens where I see it as spiritual only? That everything is a spiritual problem. That, well, there's a spiritual aspect to every problem, but everyone is not origin, originated in, in, in the spiritual. It could be the medical. Very likely it is with a lot of these. And the more we look at mental illnesses, different ones, the more we see absolutely it's a biochemical thing. I mean, bipolar disorder. 
People don't just... It's, it's, it's not sin that causes people to be way up here, got it, or way down here. It's a biological issue. Uh, and the same thing would be like if, if we have a particular gift of, of laying out of hands, healing or deliverance. Those are very valid things, but it's not the only thing. We need to work in conjunction with each other. The, the, the parts of the body are diverse. I think sometimes I felt like maybe uh, I didn't belong into the body in some of the bodies I've been in because I'm in the field of psychology. Uh, I think that's not so true as it used to be. When I first went into it, my pastor uh, was quite upset that I went that direction. I, all right, now then. She, Ruth tells me I've got five minutes left. And here, I hope I can do this in five minutes because this is, this is what I want to say. This is what I think God wants me to say. Again, he did the same thing as he did last week. He rewrites the end of my message. I knew this message was a little bit long, and so I, was, I went to bed last night thinking, how can I cut certain things out? What, how am I going to end it? I don't, I don't have an ending. And I got the ending, uh, I don't know, 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. It happens a lot. I hate that when God does that. But no, really not. I don't. I love it. Because he always speaks to me about myself. I wanted to end with the other problem person, the one who thinks that he doesn't need others, and particularly the lesser, the weaker, he calls them. The one who is self-sufficient. So I had written a whole bunch, I got a lot of slides on that, so I'm trying to understand this guy. And I wake up in the morning and it's like God just said, here, take this pencil and just X out the last two pages and just stop wrestling with the name of who this is and just put in Ken Taylor. <laughs> You'll know how to describe him because I'm telling you who, uh, about him. I'm serious. Of, of the, all the groupings that we might make about mental illness or physical illness or physical deformities, all these kind of things, you know what I think the biggest group is? The biggest group is the one that I'm in, and I suspect many of you are in, and that's the ones who don't really need the others. We don't need them. Now, this isn't the first time God's spoken to me about this. It started probably 25 years ago, and I've been, I've been working on this, working on facing the reality of, of my, my struggles. I'll just say this openly. I, 20 some years ago, 23, 24 years ago, I, I, uh, 
was found out to have a pornography problem by my wife. Had hit it for years. It was just it was just brought tumult and 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 great shock to our our ourselves. And uh, it took me a while, but I, I started I, I decided to maybe take my own advice as a as an addictions counselor to go to a group. Actually, I was asked to start this group because I was a professional working in the area of sex addiction and some Christian people who were already doing work in, in, uh, in uh, SA, Sexologics Anonymous, they, 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 they knew I was a therapist and they asked me if I would lead their group and I'm sitting around the table and, and I'm, some of them were even my own clients and I said, uh, they were all kind of telling me why they were there and I'm thinking, oh boy, uh, who am I? Am I going to be their leader, their meeting leader, who kind of uh, guides them, or am I going to be a member? And I decided I'm going to be a member. I'm a member. Still a member. Twenty some years later, I'm still a member. And I've gotten free from that. But I didn't just get free by somebody laying hands on me and off I go. I've been, I've been getting free for 20-some years. Amen. So I've got a history with that. But it's still, there's still that thing in me. I've got to tell you the story and then we'll close. i got a real close friend, one of my best friends. We, we started meeting together many years ago. Uh, just for accountability's sake, to, to become better people, better Christians. And, and, and uh, there's been a lot of that in our give and take. But of course, it, a lot of these things devolve into just kind of talking about everything else, football and politics and everything. And, and it just becomes a kind of a normal friendship. And I think that's fine. But, but we were, you know, I just... I don't think we were really getting that real and deep with each other. And one morning, my friend gave me a great gift, and I don't even think he knew that he was doing it. He comes in. I say, how you doing? He says, not the usual, doing fine. He said, no, I'm not really doing very well, to be honest with you. He said, and he started to elaborate, and there was no big bombshell, no nothing like that, no... No, no uh, uh, acute situation. It was just, it just I, for six months, he said, I really have been off my game. I really haven't been just the way I want to be. It's sort of like Paul saying, the things that I want to do, I don't, I'm not doing them. And the things that I don't want to do, I, I'm doing those. You know, this is, this is, uh, this is us. And he's, and he's saying that. And I immediately, I'm drawn to him. I'm, it's like, whoa, this is, I want to hear more about this. And he's, he's doing that. And, and then there's another thing that's, that's, that's rising up with me that was, that was just in the, in the interiors of my, of my awareness. 
And I said to him, you know, I got to tell you, I'm worse off than you are because I don't even care. You're upset about, about, your, about things in your life and you, you're, you're bothered by it. I don't even care. I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to leave from here. He knew that I volunteered at Wayside Cross as a, as a, a therapist. You know, twice a week I'd go there and I, 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 was, I said, I'm going right over there. I got six appointments in a row with these uh, addicts. And I got to tell you the truth. I don't want to be there. I don't want to be there. I feel so defeated. I feel like they're not listening to me. I, I'm not doing any. I'm not have nothing to offer. And I'm frankly, I don't even like these people. We spent a longer session than we usually did, but I was thinking about it later, and we didn't, neither one of us said one thing about a plan, how we could change. I drive there, and I can just tell you that that day was one of the most beautiful days I ever had with clients. Six sessions in a row, every one of them dynamite, connecting. They got, they really got with it very quickly, didn't they? Or was it me? Was I a different person? I think so. I, I just want to say, if you can identify with that, if you're the, what I think the great majority, you think you don't need this. Some churches have celebrate recovery, in which there's a completely different ethic than, than church. In celebrate recovery, we talk about our problems, we talk about our weaknesses. In regular church, we don't talk about them. But one of the really telling things it's great to have a program like that. I'm like, glad they do. But the ones that I've been visited, the members don't go. It's outreach people. I say that we're going to be a better body if we go. You see a list of all the the, the things that that Celebrate Recovery was appropriate for. It's a list this long. And if you read that list and you can't find your, your, your name on there, you're in denial. Hurts, habits, hang-ups. Hurts, habits, hang-ups. Got any of them? You belong. Okay, I'll close there. We belong Amen. to the body. Amen. Lord Jesus, help us. Do what you want with this message in everybody's heart, mine included. We're in your hands. Amen.